All right, welcome back everyone to another episode of A Modern Nonprofit Podcast. I am here today with one of my friends here, Rachel D'Souza Siebert, right? Did yeah, I get it right? you did it, uh-huh. So Rachel also is a fellow founder and CEO of a consulting firm specifically working with nonprofits just like me. Rachel, tell us a little bit more about Gladiators. Yeah, so I founded Gladiator Consulting um, almost six years ago, uh, really with the idea that we need to have a more holistic approach to how nonprofits think about building their capacity. So we do fund and resource development, we do strategy and capacity building. um, And one of the things that I know we're going to dig into a little bit deeper is really figuring out how do we acknowledge where our organizations have been inequitable and start to figure out how to operationalize equity within and around our nonprofit institutions. I love talking to you and I feel like we always end up having like a 30 minute conversation before our formal conversations because we kind of share a lot of the exciting and just like to dive into some of these really difficult conversations. So that let's dive right into our unapologetic um, difficult conversations that I feel like sometimes we shy away from either Mm -hmm. as a community and especially in the nonprofit space, given how political or polarizing sometimes these things can be. Um, which I think kind of dovetails into my first question. So what values inform your decision to work with clients or not to work with clients? Like, what do you, what do you focus on? Yeah, sure. I mean, so the first thing, um, you know, as I was thinking about my organization and, and what I wanted it to be, um, we have our own set of guiding principles that are around racial equity and social justice, around growth, around audacity, around imagination. Um, and so those are those are the qualities that I want to bring to my work. And it is my hope that as people reach out to us or as we're building relationships with prospective clients, that those are values they share. Um, but I think, you know, two of the things that really stand out to me is a willingness to unlearn or learn new things and a willingness to take risks. Um, you know, Whereas Gladiator is working within a traditional system of, you know, philanthropy and nonprofits, um, we don't necessarily do things the way that they've always been done um, because we want our clients to have different results. And so that, you know, ability to take risks and learn a little bit and iterate and innovate and level up um, is is really something that we seek as we're thinking about the projects we want to take. I love that makes the work a little bit more meaningful when you share some of those core values and guiding principles. So there's something specific I wanted to talk about today because you're really leading the force behind what we call the community-centric fundraising movement here in St. Louis. And I think it's probably starting to pick up some wind and, and certainly some chatter in other communities outside of St. Louis. But tell us in your words what that means to you and what this is. Yeah, so let's back up just a little bit. So mm-hmm. back in, you know, 2017, I was about, you know, a couple of years into my work and really feeling a little disillusioned and feeling like I was uh, reinforcing things that weren't actually working for organizations and individuals, you know, in the nonprofit sector. And uh, in 2017, these two articles came out that have really stuck with me. One of them uh, is found in the Stanford Social Innovation Review. It's about shifting philanthropy from charity to justice. And the other one can be found on a nonprofit blogger, Vu Lay's blog, Nonprofit AF. Um, I'll let you think about what the AF stands for. Mm-hmm. Um, and they both really offered the chance for us to zoom out of the day-to-day operational, tasky, transactional transactional aspects of fundraising and resource development and asked us to look at the systems that we're operating in and 
step back a little bit from mission and look at vision, step back from our institutions and look at community. Mm -hmm. And I began to realize that the things that I had learned as a baby fundraiser, when I was in my first job, when I was in my master's program, they did serve my organization in terms of meeting a budget or retaining donors or increasing the size of gifts. Mm-hmm. But the way that I had learned fundraising or the, or the things that I were taught, I was taught as best practices, they really weren't having the transformational effect that mission or vision really allude to. And that felt really problematic to me because if we're going to live in a world of harm reduction, if we're only reducing harm, what about the people or the situations that are still being harmed? Like, how do we shift that? And so Community-centric fundraising um, is a movement. I will say that it's not necessarily just a practice. It is something bigger than um, that sort of transactional space. It's an opportunity for us to look at where we as fund development professionals, as nonprofit nonprofit employees are um, complicit in upholding some things about the system that don't work. And it gives us the opportunity to think about where we could do things differently. So you can visit communitycentricfundraising.org. They have a whole platform um, of information and ideas and principles about how this work can start to show up. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, what it really means, um, especially in the St. Louis community, is looking at the sort of um, unspoken but very real rules of engagement that nonprofit organizations have with their donors and funders and beginning to talk about them a little bit, beginning to have some uncomfortable conversations, um, giving both funders and donors and nonprofit organizations the opportunity to talk about the fact that like the way things have been working really hasn't met anybody's expectations. You know, funders are frustrated that their, um, you know, grant reports aren't saying the things that nonprofits hoped they would. And nonprofits are frustrated that they're expected to, you know, move mountains with a annual grant um, that they have 12 months to spend. And, um, you know, it is my hope that we start to get to a point where we're not in silos and we're not operating out of our own mission or a singular vision, but that we're looking around our community and figuring out who needs to be at our table, whose resources besides monetary resources, what time, what talent, what smart people do we need to actually start to move the needle towards the vision that our institutions have for the community. I love that. So I, you know, I think it certainly needs a collective effort. So in that, in that vein, what what do you think a nonprofit can do to integrate some of these ideas into their existing fundraising? Because you had mentioned that when you were kind of a baby fundraiser, I think a lot of nonprofits still fall into this camp, right? They're just going after their specific grants, they're focusing on their individual programs, and we are by default then operating in silos. So what, what yeah. can nonprofits do to integrate some of these things? Yeah, it's daunting. Change is daunting. Even when you want it, it's uncomfortable and scary. Um, And, you know, most fundraisers, they don't have necessarily power or decision-making authority within their organizations. And Mm -hmm. so it can be hard. And when you're responsible for bringing in resources, um, you know what works 
right? And you often don't necessarily take a lot of risks because what if not getting that grant or not getting that gift, you know, means that less people have access to something or less animals are cared for, or, you know, we do unintended harm. So it is complex, but uh, those things are never going to change. And so I often encourage nonprofits to look at the 10 principles and look at their development, you know, strategies and, and figure out where the opportunities are. So some really easy places to start, um, honestly, are to invite donors into the conversation. So have a lunch and learn, have a small focus group where you invite some of your favorite supporters. I don't, I don't care how big their donation is. They could give you $5 annually. They could give you $500,000 annually, right? Like bring those people who think that you are important enough that they want to share their resources with you and ask them about what they know about the organization. Ask them where they think some issues of inequity might show up. Ask them like what they, you know, what they want to hear and get a sense. When I, um, when I talk to donors, they're always interested in learning something new. Mm -hmm. Um, and very rarely has anybody said, like, I don't want to hear more about your nonprofit organization. Yeah. And so, you know, with some of our clients, you know, I think about Ford through Ferguson, I think about Generate Health, I think about the Education Equity Center of St. Louis. Mm -hmm. And then I also think about organizations like KDHX, um, which is a radio station, um, the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, where, um, you know, maybe issues of social justice and equity aren't readily accessible, but they have the opportunity to bring those conversations into their organization and talk about the history and talk about how things came to be. Um, so, that, so that's one point. I think the other point is thinking about the fact that even if your organization is, is resourced, that you're, you're an awesome fundraiser, that you're bringing money in the door, even if your organization is successful, that doesn't mean that the community is going to shift or that your peer organizations are going to be successful. Mm -hmm. So how do we kind of bust out of those silos and start to share information, yeah. think about collaborative grant applications, think about, you know, when does my organization need to apply versus when do we need to step back? Because mm -hmm. my companion organization actually does need a larger grant for us then to be able to come in behind and do it, right? How do we start to zoom out and think about the intersection of the work happening in this community? Um, and the other thing that I really love um, that I will throw out here is oftentimes when we recognize donors, we do it by the amount of money they give. Mm -hmm. So you look at a donor wall or you look at um, an annual report and we start with those who have given the most amount and we trickle down you know, to those who've given a smaller monetary contribution. Um, we don't often recognize in-kind support. We don't um, recognize a donation of skill or technical assistance. Mm -hmm. Um, and so one of the things I think nonprofits have the opportunity to do is turn the way that we recognize donors on their head. And so that could look like grouping donors by the part of your organization they choose to support. So if you have a group of general operating donors who are like, mm. put my money where you need it, recognize right. them that way. If you yeah. have donors that are helping you evaluate your programs, 
recognize them that way, whether they're giving the $5 or the $500,000, um, you know, let's change the way that we value people's contributions. Mm -hmm. I love that too. And something else that came to my mind is just the longevity of donors. You know, you, you, you see as, you know, something that's been fundraising for a long time, you'll have, you know, a $50 gift every month by the same, you know, person for years and years and years. And some organizations will never even know who this person is. Mm-hmm. And they've very faithfully given, you know, some part of their discretionary income to an organization ah. for years without even realizing who these, who these folks are. So that kind of faithful, you know, uh, it's so, that's so interesting that you bring that up. Um, very early in my fundraising career, I came across a situation where, um, a woman who had passed away had about, I think $300,000 in her estate and she left $290,000, um, to her high school. Um, this woman died when she was 90. Okay. So there'd been a lot, a lot of time had passed, um, and then left a $10,000 gift to a local nonprofit organization. And when we did some research, she indeed had given $10 every year for as long as they had had a database, she had given $10, but there weren't any records of a phone call or a handwritten thank you note or an invitation to a meeting to see, you know, the work that was happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And I often wonder if we had stopped, that nonprofit had stopped and figured out a way to bring all of their supporters along in the cultivation and stewardship and recognition piece that we often only offer to donors who make very large monetary gifts could that have been flipped, right? right? Could she have made the decision to maybe leave $290,000 to this nonprofit and $10,000 to her high school? I will always wonder that. And that is something that has mm-hmm. stuck with me sort of throughout my fundraising career. Yes, somebody that sees the finances of nonprofits, I've seen several cases of that, like the little gifts over time. And then before you realize it, when someone passes away, there's a huge bequest that's left you know, completely unknowing to the organization. So it just goes to show those little gifts can add up to bigger gifts and those little gifts, you know, like this, like I said, just being so faithful. Right. And let's let's not determine somebody's value to our organization based on one instance or one gift. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit more about the philanthropic space. What are some of the biggest barriers barriers in bringing equity into the philanthropic space? Ooh, yeah. Power. (laughs) The way that power is understood and distributed, I would say, is a pretty big barrier. Um, Foundations and people with money, um, they hold a lot of power because our nonprofit organizations have to ask for that and have to show up in a way that encourage a donor or funder to be um, willing to invest those resources and continue to invest them over time. Um, You know, so I think that that has been hard. I think the other thing that I often see sort of showing up is this idea that we really want to have transformational work happening, that we desperately want our nonprofit organizations to achieve their mission or achieve their vision, but we don't understand what that costs. We don't understand that um, that may be something that can't be accomplished with a year 
of a grant or five years of a grant. Um, or that it can't be accomplished if we ask for 100,000 and you give us 50. Like, we can't make all of the things we asked for happen. Um, and this piece that there has to be a bigger partnership. It's not the responsibility of one institution. And oftentimes when I look at the way that, you know, philanthropy has flowed, it is, you know, I give to this organization, I give to that organization, mm -hmm. I give to this third organization, because um, it, it makes me feel good, or these are the causes that I'm connected to. Um, but those organizations aren't necessarily talking with each other or planning with each other, because there is this sense of competition and of yes. siloedness and that, mm -hmm. you know, I, there are, there's a scarcity mindset and there are only so many funds available. And so I have to show up in the best way possible. Um, and, and I think that that has created this really harmful scenario with nonprofits where we want to commit to doing something huge mm -hmm. because we need the money to keep our lights on, to keep our programs moving. Um, that winds up sometimes producing underwhelming results for funders. And then funders feel a little, I don't want to say tricked, but there's a lack of trust. Like, well, we thought this is what you were going to show up with and that didn't really happen. Um, and so we think that there are just these disparate expectations that we continue to live in because the idea that we would need to have some hard conversations or start talking about the things that aren't working like they scare us like we are we are also very a conflict averse <laughs> uh, sector you know we yeah. don't always like to talk about what's working and so you know or what's not working yeah. um, so there's there's a lot of different things at play. I wish I oftentimes wish that things were as simple as black and white, but every time I think that I have a handle on it, I sort of peel back another layer and I'm like, oh no, okay, this is a whole nother factor to bring into the conversation. Well, and I find too that it's sometimes not even just donor or foundation, but governmental funding as well. And I've I've been around the sector for long enough and I've seen you know, similar organizations, similar programming, quality of programming, accredited by the same individuals or the same institutions, I should say. Um, and there's this idea of grow bigger and bigger and bigger because then you have some more uh, like street credibility. And then you end up with these like conglomerate monster nonprofits working in communities for which they have no community roots, yeah. um, working in programs that they've just launched because they're chasing dollars that are now yeah. available. Yeah. And it's kind of like the Walmart or the Amazon phenomenon of the people that are probably best suited to do the work in those communities or delivering specific services are kind of pushed out to the margin. Mm -hmm. I see this oftentimes with government contracts and funding because the government contracts, those particular funders, in my experience, at least on a local level, tend to fund the same types of institutions with greater and greater and greater dollars even though you will see an organization on this side of town in a more affluent area, all of a sudden now working all the way across the city in more, you know, I guess, urban, um, lower income, yeah. like their county, all 30 minutes away or 45 minutes away is their headquarters all the way out in the county. And all of a sudden they're a city organization, which is yeah. 
it's, it's really well, interesting to me. Yeah. And, and it's, yeah, I mean, there's this idea of resource hoarding, right? That, okay, well, if you entrusted my institution with this significant gift, we have to be the people to do it. And oftentimes you wind up with those scenarios and do not take the time to speak with who is in that community, who's already doing that work right. in the community. Right. Um, and it, and it causes harm. <laughs> like, I mean, at the end of the day, it causes harm. Um, sure. and, we, and we are sort of stuck in these cycles because, you know, what if we said no to a funder? What if we said we asked for X, Y, and Z, but actually we only need blank and you need to give the other X percentage of money to the people in the community who are doing the work already to help them build an infrastructure. And then yeah. we can work together. Like, yeah. That would yeah. Be that's the dream that's and the goal. It got me thinking when you said if, if an organization decided to pass on an opportunity or to refer a partner hey there's actually an organization in that neighborhood of priority funding they already have the infrastructure in place they already have the facilities in place I don't need to take their money and then go set up shop in that neighborhood because there's already a network of providers in that neighborhood so um, I've kind of witnessed some of those things and yeah. and you know, like I said, the people that in my opinion already work in that space, already understand the programming or the neighborhood or whatever it is a community needs, mm -hmm. they end up not getting funded. And then you have these other organizations, you know, commuting 30 to 45 minutes yeah. um, from across the town or across the river yeah, yeah. here in St. Louis, you know, so Illinois is another river on the other side of the river. But anyway, yeah, so yeah. I've seen some of that um, scarcity mindset and kind of the resource grabbing uh, in some ways. So unfortunately, um, so really kind of my last question, which kind of goes back a, a lot of what we're talking about is really finding the balance between what the funder wants to fund versus what the community needs. And as an organization that wants to keep team staff retained, right? You want to keep your programming intact, but your funder, you know this, they'll ship their priority, uh, same exact funder. It's not like the, the entire philanthropic space has changed their funding. Be right. one funder funded this program, and then the next year they decide we're going to move in a different direction. Yeah. So, how do you do that? Yeah, um, you know, I think that there's a couple different things. I think that the way that some, and I'm sure you know this, the way that some sort of fiscal processes make sense to funders does not really make sense for an organization or community. Mm -hmm. So and, and I would use sort of the annual grant cycle as an example. Like I understand the utility of that from like a operational, like how do we keep a process? But when I look at some of my, you know, nonprofit clients who are like, we're asking for this money now, but it's not going to go till here. But then we have to like report before we have these things. Cause it's like, it, it's not in service to sort of anybody, you know? And so I think that there is, an opportunity, honestly, for funders and nonprofits and stakeholders, right? Because ultimately, in many cases, funders and nonprofits are sort of another layer of gatekeepers in terms of getting resources to people with lived experience um, mm -hmm. who are in it, right, every day. How do we get to a point where everyone has a seat at the table? We are able to listen without ego without the layers of power that are there and then take a couple risks you know um 
One example that I've really been thinking about recently is the Robley Foundation. So mm -hmm. the Robley Foundation is a local foundation here in St. Louis. Um, they have been funding sort of youth-centered and um, you know education-centered causes forever. Um, I, I, I've worked with and for many nonprofits that have received mm -hmm. a grant from the Robley Foundation. And um, over the course of the last few years, uh, they have engaged with a client of mine, Ford through Ferguson, in a number of ways. Um, they have gone through some of Ford through Ferguson's trainings um, on systems inequity, on, on racial inequity. They have participated in the community conversations and teach-ins that we've held. They have studied the reports that Ford through Ferguson has um, released. They've invited the executive director of the organization to, to speak with, you know, members of the trustees. And out of that has come a really interesting evolution um, in how the trustees of the Robley Foundation have decided to update their grant making criteria. Um, and it really is a shift to looking at some systems and looking at some upstream causes. Mm -hmm. Do I want every you know funder to say we're only going to fund systems? No, everything matters. We need diapers on butts and people staying, people not getting evicted, and people having access to food when they're experiencing food apartheid. And like we need all of those things, and we need some comfort around looking at why those things happen and where we need to go upstream to change. Right, and so. That's just an example, one small example of how a funder can take cues from the organizations that they work with, can pay attention to what's happening in the community, can be open to learning and sharing information and, and to changing and to saying like, this worked for us for a number of years. And now we have an opportunity to try something different and we're gonna try it, right? So I think that there's, um, what is the, the language that the Ferguson Commission used? Um, a culture of trying. Let's mm. try it. Let's see, you know, what's possible. Absolutely. And, you know, not, not hold it against anyone if it fails, if it doesn't work the first time. Um, if, if, shoot, if half the things I did worked for the first time, I'd be in a much different place in my life. Um, you know, so let's, let's give some space for learning in this process and for innovation. I love that. So for people that want to learn more about the work that you do or the work you do for your clients, right? If anyone's listening to this, like, Hey, I might have somebody that's interested to fund some of the projects that you're working on. Um, how, how, how can people find you? What's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, so I would go to our website, um, www.gladiatorrds.com. Um, we are also on Twitter. We are on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook if you're not a you know website person, if you want to just follow along on social media. Um, but if you do visit our website, there is a platform where you can um, request a meeting to engage with me or a member of um, our team um, to hear a little bit more about what we do and how we do it with our clients. Love that. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us today and all of the knowledge that you've shared. I always love these conversations. It really maybe pushes us a little out of our you know, comfort zone and that's on purpose. So thank you again, Rachel. And we'll talk, I guess, again soon. Thank you Bye. so much. Happy Friday. <laughs>